I am already so thankful for this wonderful time we've had with one another uh, to uh, Dwayne and to, to John, Robin, who planned this service. It's been such a wonderful Mendelssohn, great hymns of the faith, brand new hymn just written, you know, this past year. Um, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Now we come to, uh, to the, the word of our Lord, and I pray that we'll hear his voice, and this will be a part of our worship together as well. So let's open this, the word of God, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and then I'm going to have us flip over to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Uh, sometimes people talk about uh, the Bible having a heavenly message, um, a message for the future, and it does have that. But then sometimes we have texts that are just right down to earth. I mean, for every day of our lives right now, and this is one of those. You are going to see it. First Corinthians chapter 16 is where we'll begin. Let's stand and remember that this is indeed the word of the, God, of, of the Lord. Verse 1. Now, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give you letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And then over in chapter in second Corinthians chapter eight. So he'd called the Corinthian church to give. They had started. They had stopped. So now he's going to motivate them. Chapter eight, verse one. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This was a poor group of churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us in keeping with God's will. Down at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. And then over in chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly. Or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And then he ends the discussion in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We are now into this very brief series of messages that I'm doing that I'm calling Lives of Worship. We began last week with a message about how we're ever going to really learn to worship together. We're thinking about heaven. I I keep wondering how God is going to do it, where we have people from every nation and every language and all musical tastes uh, from all over the world now, but also for over at least two millennia coming together and singing praise to God. How is he going to do it? And thinking, how can we become a body that already is singing praise together to the glory of God? And as you have heard, I have received an unbelievable amount of response. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. But having touched upon what some consider to be a sensitive issue, music, I thought probably I'd need to back off and take a less sensitive issue. So this morning we'll talk about money, (laughs) stewardship as a part of worship to God. Now you know that money is a difficult thing for most of us in church to talk about very much. Some, Some churches I know talk about it way too much. Most, I think, talk about it too little because pastors shy off from it. But really, we should talk about it. But it is difficult. And I think partly it's because it's so personal. It's so personal that we we all become a little bit defensive when we start thinking about it. So I hope we can pull back and simply listen to what God has to say. But all of us know stories in which, uh, you know, all sorts of squabbling has happened over over money. And there's one story I've heard all of my church life. I, I just can't imagine it's really true. But maybe you've heard it, too. I'll tell it to you. And then even if if it's not true, it sounds like church. Yeah, you'll say that it's of a man who had been going to a church for a long time and they were going to be having a budget meeting. And Lee, we have we're going to be having if he's still here, we're going to have budget meetings here. We have those, don't we? Yes. Yes, we do. And in this budget meeting, there was always one man who got up and was complaining about how money was being spent in the church. And so in this particular time, he came and says, look at this. We are spending in this church far too much money on all sorts of things we don't need. Like these chandeliers that are listed here. They're way too expensive. Now, you know, I've been going to this church a long time and I have a lot of friends. So I'm not just speaking for myself. I've talked with a lot of people and there's not a single person who likes these things. And I've heard that there's nobody in the church who can play them. By the way, you need to know that what we really need around here is some more lights. (laughs) All right. I can't imagine that's true. Can you? But it does sound like what happens in church. So, okay, here we gather. Uh, Our calendar year is just behind us. And this is my first year really to go through the the church life with you. Uh, And the giving of this church family has been. Did you look on the worship folder? I'll tell you, if you're visiting with us today, you would have to agree with me. It has been thrilling. And for me as pastor here, it has been so encouraging. Um, I've even thought that perhaps I need to have some of you teach this message 
because it seems to me you're already living it out. One of the things that I've heard as I've become a new pastor in this community is so many people drive past this large church and they wonder how on earth do you do it? And they know about the ministries that we have not only here, but also into the community as a whole. And so often they'll ask me, now, how do you do it there? One of my favorite comments was, do you have casino nights? Is that how, is that how you do it? Or do you have bingo games? Uh, how do you do this financially? Now, I'm going to come to you as simply as I can and tell you, as a follower of Jesus, I sincerely believe that God does provide, as he always has provided, through the generosity of his people. That where God's people, since that God is at work, we're simply so grateful that we want to give so that that work can not only continue, but can continue to grow. And that's what I see is happening here at Lake Avenue Church, and I am so thankful. And yet still, practically-minded people want to know how do you do it in a church like this. Now, I've been a churchgoer for so many years, and I have some insight. And for those who are brand new to the life of the church, this may be shocking. The rest of you have heard it so often, but you need to listen again. Church after church for generations and really all around the world are able to provide financially for the work that God has given them through the fact that so many people in the life of the church engage in a discipline called tithing. Do you know that word? It's based upon Old Testament texts. You know, there's no command to do so in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, among the people of Israel, there were tithes. Ten percent was set aside. But you need to know that if you want to take this as a rule, there wasn't just one tithe. Did you know there were three tithes? Uh, Two of them were taken annually, and the third one seems to be taken every three years. So if you want to follow a rule, it's more like 23% rather than 10. I'm trying to see if anybody's leaving already. Yeah, one. (laughs) Now, before you get too shocked, that, that 23% was used for almost the entire working of the nation. It was for defense for the military. It was for social security. It was for welfare. But there was 10% of it that was set aside simply for the work of God and the work of God's house. Now, when you come into the New Testament, you don't find that rule reinstated. But what you find New Testament Christians doing is what we're doing right now. Wrestling with how we respond to what God has done for us. That God gave his son, Jesus gave his entire life for us. How shall we respond to what he has done? And, and when you come to the book of Acts, some of them did something that, that may not have been wise, but I appreciate the heart. Some of them should, said, well, we should just bring everything we have and give it to the church. Um, that didn't last very long, okay, in case you wonder. <laughs> By the second century, you had them pulling back and redeveloping uh, the notion of tithing that that was going on. But once again, it's not a rule. Instead, it is simply sort of a guideline or a principle for giving. Now, for me, uh, this matter of a tithe is that it might be a good guideline to help you look and see how God would have you to respond in your worship through your giving. Now, new time church people, I know this is really hard. Uh, Just going to church every week is already a new part of your life and you're developing a new lifestyle. The thought that this part of your income would be set aside every week was almost a shocking thing. So I would say you might be able to begin progressively 
But I, I simply want to tell you what I think so many people in this church family would affirm. There is great joy. There is great blessing uh, in, in giving in this way and that we can never outgive God. The fundamental principle that I want to lay before you, though, is that our financial stewardship is simply a response to what God has done. It's not a rule that God gives us. It's a lifestyle that we develop. It's a part of walking with God, and it's built upon several fundamental principles that you find in the Bible. It is a life of worship. So let me remind you what worship is. This is the definition that I'm working from. Worship is the proper response of the whole of our lives to the triune God. It's the proper response of the whole of our lives to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when we worship, we ascribe all honor, all praise, all worth to God precisely because He's worthy of it. True worship then results in God being at the center both of our adoration, but also of our action, both in our personal lives and in our corporate gatherings. So it, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that we develop, that we see that all that we are and have, God has given to us. And then we ask, Father, how do I live in the light of that? And here several principles have guided most believers. I'll just list them for you. One, that all we have belongs to God. Even the gifts, the energy, the health, the talents to pursue our careers, that too is a gift from God. And so that changes everything because the natural way we as human beings think about it is all that I have is mine, right? And then even in giving, we think, how much should I give of mine to him? But the biblical point is that all you are, he's made, all you have, he has given so the real question is, how much should I keep? And Father, what would you have me to do with what you've entrusted to me? We then become stewards of what belongs to him. It's a whole different mindset, isn't it? Principle two. We believe that the possessions of this world are temporary. Yes, God's going to remake heaven and earth. But still, the possessions that we have don't last. They're a part of a passing age. Therefore, the consequence of this is that possessions have no eternal ultimate value. That's hard for some people to believe, too, but it's true. And most of us, when we think about it, we know it's true. Three, in spite of that, these temporary possessions have a power about them. And, and the way I've put it here, they have the power to possess the possessor. What, what do you think of that? Possessions can possess the possessor. We know they don't last, but somehow they become the most important parts of our lives. They can take the place of God in our lives. And I just want to tell you, they are rotten gods. They'll let you down every time. But they do have this natural power about them in the hearts of people. The fourth, at the same time, we who are Christians know that temporary possessions... Though they can possess us, they're still a part of God's good creation. Temporary possessions can be used to bring about eternal things, lasting benefit. And so that brings me to my very simple, maybe it's almost too simple, definition of stewardship. Good stewardship is this. It's using what we know doesn't last long to bring about what lasts longer. It's using what we all know doesn't last long to bring about something that lasts longer. 
That means Christian and non-Christian can be smart enough to be a good steward. But in 1 Corinthians 16, Jesus makes a great point. He says, the children of the light, that's us who belong to the one who is the light of the world. Children of the light have the ability to know that temporary things can be used for the eternal. They are temporary. They can bring about the eternal what, you might ask. What we give can be used to lead people to Christ provide places where we can grow and worship together, uh, to see people made in God's image who are hurting and suffering and facing injustice and being able to speak up for God's kingdom in the midst of a world like this in so many ways. And so what we need to do is figure out how actually to be good stewards. And I want you to know this morning that the Bible provides some very practical guidelines for how you and I might engage in good stewardship. If you want, you can take out this little sheet of paper. I've listed them there and keep them in front of you as we move. Because I think the Apostle Paul is someone who gives us good instruction about this. I find that people who even know their Bibles pretty well don't realize that the Apostle Paul was not only an evangelist. And not only was he a church planter. You know what else he was? He was a fundraiser. (laughs) The Lord had put something on his heart. He had met brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Who are going through terribly difficult times financially. Uh, From history we know famine had hit Jerusalem in the first century. The Christians had also experienced such persecution. Some will say that because some of those early Jerusalem Christians had given away everything they had in the beginning. They had nothing left for later. I don't know if that is true or not. But all that I know is this. That they had hit a point where they had nothing. And yet they had other family members around the world. To whom God had entrusted more at that time. Family members in wealthy churches like those in Greece. And especially in a city in Corinth. And so the Apostle Paul, and he writes about it in many places, was engaged in trying to make sure that people were giving so that God's blessing could go to others. The church in Jerusalem had been a blessing to the church in Corinth. Do you know how? They had sent out people with the Gospels like Paul. And so the gospel had come to Corinth. So they had graced the Christians in Corinth. And now the Christians in Corinth were going to be able to grace them back. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, they had started well. They had started well. And so Paul had given them instructions and they'd started in in a very good way. They'd been generous. But something had happened. And when you come to 2 Corinthians, and I would just want you to read it through. Some people had come in claiming to be super apostles. And turning them away from thinking about the things of God and really thinking about the people of God who were hurting and turning all of their attentions to themselves internally. And they'd stopped giving. And so you come to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I love these chapters. They really are the earliest Christian fundraising letter. The Apostle Paul is just trying to motivate them to give. And he begins by citing some very poor churches in Macedonia. They had almost nothing and they were giving far beyond what this church in Corinth was giving. It would be like a church in Bangladesh out giving us here in Southern California. That would be unimaginable. And and when you read it, I read those first five verses of 2 Corinthians 8. The Apostle Paul hadn't even asked them, knowing that they had so little, but they had come and begged him for the opportunity. We want to give too. And he loved the way they did it. They gave first of themselves. And then to the Lord. It was, it was just such a, a wonderful example of giving as worship. Giving 
as, as worship. And, and I learned there what I've learned throughout my life, that often it's those who have the least who become the most generous. Have you found that? The most welcoming, the most hospitable. So many of our people who went down to serve in Katrina give testimony to that. We went to give and we feel like we were the ones who received. And that's what happened here. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 talks to them about how to give. And then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he tries to motivate them to give better. And all of that, I have simply reduced it into seven simple guidelines for us as followers of the Lord about how we might be better stewards. Here's what I would ask you to do as I go through them. Just pray about your own response to God. I know that after Christmas, where there's been so much talk about money, that to come in and have your pastor talk about money can feel oppressive. I also know that we have people here in our church who are going through terribly difficult financial straits. And I know that a message like this can be difficult, so simply let God direct you and guide you. He doesn't ask you to give what you don't have, but I think he will help you to see how as we live in this material world, how we might view it and use it in honor of him. Are you ready? Guideline number one. Our giving as good stewards should be regular. In fact, I would say that we learn a discipline. Look at chapter 16, verse 2, one little phrase. On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, each one of you should. Do you see that? And this is what he said in verse 1, I told the Galatian churches to do. This is simply a pattern, not just for one church, but for all of us. It's a phrase like this in the Bible that leads me to call it the discipline or the lifestyle of giving. That the Apostle Paul was inclined to think that most people have the sort of income flow that we can regularly in a disciplined way say, this is what God has entrusted to me. And we can have these regular disciplined times of saying, I'm going to set this aside now so that I don't spend it. And I can give that to the work of the Lord. Now, I know not everybody can do that. Sometimes the income flow is so sporadic, given what God's called us to do and be. One of my close friends, um, who was one of the major donors to the school that I was the president of, uh, his, his income was so sporadic when his family company would sell a big tractor, then we would knew, know, knew we would get a great gift. Made me pray for tractor sales in, in, in great ways. But most of us are able to do this. And now, there are two things that happen. One, we're able to develop a way of life, a way of life in which we don't live beyond our means and we still have something to give to the Lord. We develop that consistency. And second, in the life of a church like this one, we're able to count upon your giving and plan for it with regard to ministry. Uh, Lee Merritt, our church chair, was talking about your generosity, giving us the freedom now to begin praying about are there things that God would have us to do in the community and the world that up to now we have been unable to do. So that Paul will put that little phrase in, do it this way, so that when I come I won't have to beg, I won't have to collect, we will know what is there and we'll know how that might provide for the people of God and for the work of God. I think the point simply is this. As you identify what God has entrusted to you, develop this discipline of regularly praying about it and setting aside a portion for the work in the house of God. Two. Our giving should be proportionate. And here I'm talking about proportionate to what God has entrusted to us. Look at that phrase in chapter 16, verse 2. So often ignored. 
in keeping with his income. Have you ever noticed that? Each one should set it aside on this regular way in keeping with the income God has provided. Or or if you look over at chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul takes this up again. According to your means. I'm talking about giving according to what one has, Paul says, not according to what one does not have. I talked with a few folks after the service last night who found that to be such a freeing phrase in the Bible. That God doesn't tell you you have to give what you don't yet have, but he's asking you to view what you have as a gift from him and give accordingly. Now, again, I think this is talked about too rarely. I've read so many books about this and don't see this point emphasized nearly enough. And that's why I talk about this matter of a tithe more as a guideline than a rule. Because just think about it. You know, we have such a broad range of financial capability here at Lake Avenue. Uh, Think about it. If if there's a family that has four children and whose total income is twenty five thousand dollars and somehow they have learned to live in this area and give two and a half thousand dollars to the Lord annually. How is that in comparison to a family of of three, perhaps where the income is three hundred thousand dollars and whose annual giving is thirty thousand? Which one in the eyes of God would be giving more? I think that's something for us to think about. Fred Smith, you you may know of him, president of Fred Smith Associates in Dallas. He's the head of a group called The Gathering, uh, for for people who have been entrusted with much, trying to learn how God would have them to be good stewards of that. He wrote about his testimony once, I really like this in Christianity Today, that in the beginning of his life as a college student, he started out disciplining himself to give 10% when he worked for $6 an hour. He said, but he said, I'm not sure God is all that impressed with me when I only give 10 percent of my six or seven figure income. That goes to the heart. And he said, begin to give in a disciplined way when you're young and poor, because I imagine that those who do are the same ones who are generous when they're older and wealthier. I think he's right. I've become more and more convinced that it would be consistent with biblical teaching if our giving proportionately would increase with the amount that God has provided to us. Uh, John Wesley, uh, the great uh, Christian leader of the past, is one whose story is told so often in messages like this one, that when he began in ministry, he gave 28 pounds. He lived on 28 pounds a year, British pounds. Uh, As he went on, he became a quite wealthy man because his books and so forth sold so much. But he continued to live on 28 pounds a year and he gave all the rest away. I'm not saying that that's what we should do, but I think that the principle that guided him is a helpful one. As God blesses us more in keeping with income, let us learn to be worshipers. Third, giving should be done wisely. In other words, we're responsible to give, but I think we're also responsible to be wise that the money that we give is actually getting to the place for which we are giving it. So that we have a phrase like in chapter 16, verse 4, Paul says, if it seems advisable to you, if it seems advisable to you. And what he's talking about is this, where you have these gifts and they are there and they are designated for this particular area. This particular need. When they come, you identify your most trustworthy persons and you send them with the money uh, to to Jerusalem so so that you'll know it'll get there. And, And if it is advisable that I could go too, then you send them with me anyway. 
so that we'll make sure that this is done honorably and with the right kind of accountability. And he takes that up again, in case you miss it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 15 and following. He said, now, when you, send, when you renew your giving, find your best person, a person like Titus, and you make sure that he goes along with anybody who's carrying that money. And he gives some of the reasons. Verse 20 of chapter 8, look at it. Because we as Christians, we want to avoid any criticism of the way that we administer this generous, this liberal gift. Now, this was written a long time ago, but it sounds like the kind of thing we should talk about. One of the biggest criticisms of the life of the church in the 21st century is they misuse the money. They take it up and they use it for themselves. It's not used. And Paul says, that's not what a church should do. You should make sure you have the right checks and balances. Is it because the apostle Paul was a dishonest man that he says this? I tell you, it's not. It's because he was a human being. (laughs) And because money is so tempting and that all of us need this kind of accountability to make sure that what is entrusted to us is used in the right way and that a local church is actually using money the way that we say that we are using it. He takes it up in verse 21 again. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of people. I have thought about this with Lake Avenue Church and as as this community watches us and we're wanting to make sure that we proclaim Christ and do things honorably and honestly and transparently, that the way we use finances is going to be one of the most important ways for us to glorify God in this community. It really is one of the reasons why giving to a local church can be, I mean, if we have openness in our financial accountability, can be the best way to give because you can watch and have a voice in it. All of that is to say That giving should be done wisely, wisely, where there is appropriate checks and balances, appropriate accountability that the funds are used in a way that honors God. Fourth, giving should be generous. Um, As God has given generously to us, Christian giving should be generous. And he uses this this agricultural metaphor in chapter nine, verse six. Remember this, he says. I'm sure this was a saying that was common in the first century. Whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously is going to reap generously. It's figurative, but we can all understand what he's talking about. That where we are generous in our giving, that, that that is something that God is going to use powerfully. Now, listen to me carefully. This verse is often ripped out of context to say, all right, here's why you should give. So that you can get a whole lot more. Want to be rich? Give me a lot of your money right now. If you read through these chapters, you will see that's not at all what he is talking about. He says, look, God has given everything. Christ gave his life. Now, you be as generous and you see what God will do. Um, that, that giving is a part of worship of people who are so thrilled with what God has done. We hear the gospel. We see people's lives being touched with what we have given. We are thankful and we say, thank you, Father, that I have the ability, that you've given me the ability to be able to give somewhat to that sort of ministry. And I I think the simplest question I'd want to put before you is this. If everyone knew how much you gave, would they say that person is generous? If everyone, if, if we would do what some have done and publish the level of giving, and, and a parenthesis for a moment, 
I have no idea how much any one of you gives uh, intentionally because I'm afraid I would treat people differently on the basis of that because I'm human like the Apostle Paul was. So I don't know. Back into the message for, for a moment. If I did, would I say you are generous? Of course, the Lord does. And the real question that we would want to ask ourselves is, Lord, are you pleased with the way that I have been a steward generously of what you have given to me? Because Christian giving should be generous. And when it is, he says, it's cheerful and God loves a cheerful giver. Which brings me to the next point. Fifth, giving should be purposeful. It should be purposeful. Chapter 9, verse 7 has this phrase. Each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give. That phrase decided in his heart means to pull back, to take time and reflect upon. And for us as Christians, prayerfully to reflect upon what God would have us to do. In other words, good stewardship is one of those matters where we come to church, we hear again about what God has done, we look at his word as we're doing today, and then we go back and we begin to pray carefully. Father, what have you entrusted to me? And what would you have me to do? It is not simply an emotional reaction with a pastor. Who, if, if I'm good at it, I can, I can get, make you feel so guilty for what you're not giving. Or if I can thrill you somehow and say, now you must give everything, that just in a moment you pull out a checkbook and give everything. Christian giving is a way of life. And so we pull back as people who are wholly given to God, as the Macedonians did. First they gave themselves to the Lord, and then they were ready to give materially. So Christian giving should be this sort of purposeful, deliberate, prayerful use of what God has entrusted to us as stewards. I find that helpful. Then sixth. Then giving should be done willingly. Look at verse 7. Each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. All right. I was a university president. Sometimes we just didn't have enough. And I'll tell you, this desire to, to, to try to find some way to... To twist people's arm. To, I have felt it. I have felt it all the time. And then I kept coming back to this phrase. Christians don't give reluctantly and Christians don't give under compulsion. And yet sometimes our fundraising isn't done that way. And you may have to remind me of this sometime because I feel the temptation of this sometime. But I have received all of those appeals and I, I, I've written down some of the ways that I've looked at it. It seems like sometimes we begin gently and optimistically. You know, give and your money will give, will show how much you love. You've gotten those. And then, of course, you give and, and people are able to expand, but then they need more. And the next one will be, well, give me money or you're not going to get God's blessing. That doesn't, and then, of course, a crisis will come and the pressure becomes greater. Give money to save this ministry. Don't let God down. And eventually there are the almost visions of grandeur about one's own ministry. My ministry is saving the world. Give or the kingdom of God may fail. Sometimes it could almost reach the absurd. I remember one appeal. Give or God's going to take my life if you don't give to me. Just almost unimaginable, but it really happened. Ever escalating pressure. And you know what an unbelieving world does? When it sees Christians talking like this, they say, what kind of a God like is, is this God who is so obsessed with money? 
And is so needy that he has to get threaten people's lives to, to get them to give. That is not the God we serve. He is the one who has given. And the ability to give back out of thanksgiving to him is a privilege. So, so don't give under compulsion, nor reluctantly. Do it joyously, and you'll find God loves a cheerful giver. Finally, I just want to tell you that giving to the work of God does bring great blessing. Uh, chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is the point at which if we had a lot of time, I would have loved to have had a lot of uh, Lake Avenue people come up and give testimonies about the blessing that they had received from giving. Uh, I, we were talking about it in ministry council. And some of the ministry council people said to me, Pastor Greg, don't be afraid to talk about this. This is one of the greatest joys in all of our walk with the Lord. Uh, we give and we also have we have joy that we're able to respond to what God has done. And if we are wise in a church like this and use your giving in a way that really furthers the work of the Lord, as you see that happening, there's incredible joy, isn't there? Worship services take on a whole new meaning. Uh, Where you you give, that's where your heart is. And so as you've given, you're, you're so much a part of that. Your whole heart is involved as people come to Christ, as you hear testimonies of people whose lives have been served. As you see the ministries to children and young people and you hear and meet some of our missionaries, our international staff, then you, you say, oh, that is not just them, that is us. Thank you, Lord, as the Macedonians did. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being a part of that. There is great joy and blessing in giving. And in fact, I love the last phrase in verse 9. Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's worthy of a highlighter. Your generosity can have that eternal benefit that people will give thanksgiving to God. So there's my message. Do you see, Christian giving is a part of worship. It's a part of our proper response to God. It is not the grudging giving of an Ebenezer Scrooge who has to have three ghosts visit him for things to change. It it is not... The impulsiveness of somebody who goes to Las Vegas and then says, I've got, I've got to spend it this way. It is the disciplined, prayer-filled, thankful response of a person wholly given to God. May I show you two verses at the very end. Chapter 8, verse 9. You and I know. We've come here because we know the grace, the giving of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet became poor, even to the point of a cross, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich, his people, part of an eternal family. Hallelujah. In verse 15 of chapter 9. How can we end in a better way than the Apostle Paul does? What is going to be motivating us to worship through giving? It's going to be when we sing and stay to the depths of our being. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Because I'm not the real giver. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
Hallelujah. To his glory. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, as I so often pray, I pray again. I've simply been faithful to your word. That what we've looked at is what you have taught us through your word. And now, Father, show us how that should apply to our daily living. Father, we want to be true worshipers. And we see here so clearly that the way we give of our time, of our gifts, and also of our finances is a part of our response to you. Thank you for what you've given us. Father, for those going through financial difficulties, I, together with so many others, pray, Father, give them freedom and help them again to find ways to be able to give. For the rest of us, Father, who have begun to see as it's so natural for us to see that everything is ours, it's mine. Father, we turn to you and say, Father, all that we are is yours. Now continue to teach us that we may live in a way that brings pleasure and honor to you. In Jesus' name.